Welcome to this special edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the Princeton U.S.-China Global Governance Forum, Social Distancing Edition 2020. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina, which, as you should know by now, is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China through our email newsletter, our website, our app, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to thank the organizers of this terrific event, uh, which I've had the honor of participating in a few times now, and it's always just wonderful. So a big thanks to Chris Walton, Jack Allen, Nikita Salgame, and especially Owen Matthews. So today, I am honored to be joined today by someone I deeply deeply admire, a constant source of wisdom and sensible thinking of just the very sort we desperately need right now. Susan Thornton is a career foreign service officer whose career in diplomacy spanned almost 30 years so far. So far. Hopefully it'll keep going, uh, culminating in her appointment, of course, as Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. She left office in 2018 and has since been an unflagging champion of a more sensible American approach to China and of the restoration of diplomacy to a place of prominence at a time when it is increasingly overlooked as a tool of foreign policy and statecraft. Susan is a now a, a visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School and senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center. Susan Thornton, welcome back to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser. It's great to be with you today. And I have to say, I'm so impressed. It's a Saturday morning in August, and we have a whole bunch of listeners on this program. So thank you all for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's really great to be here. Uh, from where I sit, it looks to me like the Trump administration has not just neglected or undermined or abandoned the norms of diplomacy, but it's actually worked to just completely subvert, cripple, and, and destroy diplomacy as a tool. Uh, you've had a front row seat to this whole process, at least during the first period of the Trump presidency. Uh, people often speak of sort of distinct periods at the State Department. Uh, so maybe can you characterize how diplomacy fared during your time there under Rex Tillerson and then how it's been under Mike Pompeo? Sure. Um, thanks. Well, I think the first thing that we have to all acknowledge is that um, the Trump administration, I don't think, really was prepared for the victory that they won in uh, November 2016 had not really set up an uh, infrastructure for handling foreign relations, um, and the transition was pretty rough in that department. We had a landing team that came into the State Department, um, you know, in, I think it was probably December, uh, but it turned out later that that landing team really had no connection to people in the Trump administration, and were working on things that the Trump administration had not really, um, you know, kind of authorized. They were sort of on their own. Uh, and so we were working through a normal transition at the State Department, preparing all kinds of policy papers, uh, recommendations, proposals, backgrounders to be read by this landing team, which then sort of was a whole wasted effort because nothing, nothing really took hold. Once Rex Tillerson was finally nominated, which did, if you recall, take quite a long time. Um, and then his confirmation process um, was was done in pretty short order, but he finally got to the State Department sometime in, I think it was February, 
um, we basically had to start over again at that point. So, you know, things were mm. very slow in getting off the ground foreign policy-wise with the Trump administration. Uh, but one of the things, of course, that happened very early on, I think it was the first day of the administration, was the announcement of the intention to not go forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which had been a real cornerstone in the Obama administration of efforts to try to manage the uh, you know, challenge of integrating uh, China's huge economy into the international system and to try to have a higher standards sort of set of rules for navigating that. So, you know, when Tillerson came in, it t you know, he had to deal with a whole bunch of issues right off the bat. Russia was a very hot issue, obviously, because of the election controversy. Uh, China was definitely on his radar, but it was kind of farther down the list. Um, he was, you know, trying to figure out, it was obviously a huge strategic question, the approach to China, how to handle its rise. Um, and, you know, he was also, as a previously been being a CEO and executive of ExxonMobil, but never having worked in government, you know, he, he was a complete stranger, as were many in the Trump administration who came in, to the ways of government and the bureaucracy and all of that. And so I think, you know, it was a very slow start. Tillerson did hold these weekend seminars where he tried to map out, and he was a very strategic guy, he had a very sort of long-term planning view, and wanted to map out kind of where the U.S. was going, where its long-term interests lay, and what kinds of approaches should be taken on various problems. And so I got to participate in some of his weekend sessions on China, and that's where he sort of developed this idea of coming up with this uh, diplomatic engagement through these four high-level dialogues. He was very focused on trying to enumerate U.S. priorities with China uh, and seemed to be of the opinion that we had not prioritized well on foreign policy issues in the past, which is something I frankly sympathize with. Um, and so, you know, he sort of set in motion a lot of strategic efforts that looked, um, weren't really similar to what the Obama administration had done, but weren't uh, significant breaks with past policy. And um, so I think that period under Tillerson, you know, we worked very hard right off the bat on North Korea, uh, which was a, an urgent question, and it was the first policy process that we did. And, it, and that actually ended up looking quite normal from the perspective of how we handle foreign policy crises in previous administrations. Um, so I think, you know, under Tillerson, the, the, the mechanisms and the personnel issues and the way he dealt with the bureaucracy was very difficult for people at state to adjust to. But the ideas, the strategy, the uh, policies that he was looking to put in place, for the most part, were not um, that um, disruptive, different from what we had seen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And what about uh, in, in the ensuing uh, tenure of, of Pompeo, who took over in what, I think it was August or uh, 2018, mid-2018. Mid yeah, um, no, he came in in May, actually, I think. Um, so yeah, Tillerson left in March of 2018, and uh, Pompeo was uh, in place and confirmed, I believe, by, by May, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, we had the Singapore summit with the North Koreans in early June, 
Right. We had a lot of diplomacy going with the Asians right away uh, because we had, you know, the ASEAN right. regional forum meetings and other high-level meetings. We had the, and then, uh, you know, the preparing in November for a uh, big Asia summit meeting. So, but the North Korea diplomacy was first up uh, on the docket and, um you know, that's where we saw a very different approach. A lot of people were cut out as soon as Pompeo came in. Uh, the person who worked for me on the Korea uh, portfolio, Jo Yoon, left. Um, a lot of people, um, you know, at that point uh, sort of fell by the wayside in the way Pompeo wanted to do things, and he brought in a lot of his own people right away. You know, I didn't really participate in a lot of Asia diplomacy once Pompeo came in, and it became pretty clear to me, even though I'd already had my confirmation hearing, et cetera, that, you know, Pompeo was probably going to be looking to move in a different direction personnel-wise on Asia. It wasn't so clear when he first came in that he was going to be so focused on you know, China, uh, because at that point, finally, Robert Lighthizer had been confirmed, and it was clear that Lighthizer was going to take the lead on China, um, you know, interactions, because the only thing that the president was focused on at that point still was the trade issues with China and not much else. Right. So the culture, though, seems to have taken a real change at, at the State Department. Um, give us a sense of that. From the outside, at least, it just looks like these cartoonishly macho figures in the Trump administration really seemed to set a tone um, that, you know, disparaged diplomacy as sort of weak. Uh, is, is that a fair characterization? I think um, the, the, the major damage that's been done to a lot of our institutions, but especially diplomacy uh, in this administration, has come from this penchant for talking about things in terms that are, are you know, very strong and very weak. And you hear that kind of language from the president constantly in his Twitter feed and in his remarks. He's always talking about things being very strong or very weak or people right, being right. very strong or very weak or moves that we make being strong or weak. And I think, you know, in his mindset and in the mindset of a lot of his lieutenants, diplomacy, which inherently involves, you know, imposing constraints on oneself, a negotiation, a compromise, considering the interests of others, um, is is weak. And, uh, you know, right. this administration, and particularly the president, in my view, has never liked anything that is uh, felt to be or seen as a constraint on his freedom of action. And, you know, international rules, <laughs> diplomacy, agreements, treaties, that's all things that are constraining. And so you see him kind of from day one, really, like pulling out of agreement after agreement, treaty after treaty, not wanting to um, enter into negotiations that will be seen as constraining in any way U.S. freedom of action. And you have a lot of this discussion about U.S. sovereignty. And that's really a code for not imposing or agreeing to impose any constraints on our freedom of action. Yeah, I mean, there's a long litany of, of I mean, starting on day one, as you say, with TBP. Uh, withdrawal from Paris, the JCPOA, Chorus, constant jabs at our NATO allies. I mean, a dozen other things. 
Uh, it wasn't just China then that where where the norms were upended. I mean, I think a lot of the pathologies of the Trump White House uh, when it came to diplomacy, uh, those all came out during the impeachment hearings, uh, where we learned a lot about the deliberate circumvention of diplomatic channels and, and of process. Uh, were we seeing anything similar to this with respect to China? Anything like Ukraine, where he had informal channels? Yeah, I think the thing to, um, you know, that's so different about this administration is its aversion to institutions, really, and the reliance and the desire to rely really on sort of um, personal channels, personal relationships. The, the loyalty test is very much a part of the mindset in the administration and you know, people who've been around and served in other administrations, democratic administrations, who are civil servants, who are part of these institutions that are seen as kind of constraints on executive power um, are to be suspected. And so, you know, there's a, a, a huge preference for relying on sort of personal um, channels and personal relationships. And that was true in China, too, uh, on China policy. For example, at the beginning, um, Jared Kushner took on a pretty prominent role in the China relationship while Lighthizer was getting confirmed, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, Ambassador Tui Tan Kai in Washington had meetings, several meetings with uh, Jared Kushner early on. We had Ivanka and Jared and the children showing up at the Chinese embassy for the Chinese New Year celebration, et cetera. And you saw this kind of personal and family diplomacy early on uh, with uh, actually the Ch Chinese President Xi Jinping when he came to Mar-a-Lago with his spouse. Um, the children, you know, were there and the whole family was there. And Singing Mo Li Hua and all that. Right, right, exactly, right, exactly. Right. So I think, um, and you know, the other thing is the sort of president's penchant for calling up friends to consult on various issues. And this was true, of course, also in the China relationship where, um, early on when they were negotiating the trade deal, um, we were trying to organize a lot of big deals to be signed when the president went to visit Beijing in the fall of 2017. And there was a lot of interaction by the president and his cabinet level officials with business people doing business in China, et cetera. So we're talking about what not Steve Schwartzman channels. We're talking about Steve Schwartzman and John Thornton. And, yeah, 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 all kinds of people that that president would reach out to and consult on various, you know, policy issues. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I don't feel like it was clear by the time of Mar-a-Lago, which was what I think in April uh, of the first year, um, that that diplomacy was just going to go out the window. Um, when did you sort of see the writing on the wall, or or had you already anticipated that? there was going to be this highly personalistic style. Um, yeah, I think when the administration came in, um, of course, China trade and um, writing the deficit was the highest priority in the president's mind for the U.S.-China relationship from the get-go. But because North Korea intervened as a kind of urgent crisis and because it was something that the president was personally interested in um, trying to solve um, or at least get progress on because, you know, President Obama told him it was the most urgent issue and that no previous administration had been able to get anywhere on this issue. So that was 
you know, a kind of a high priority. And at Mar-a-Lago, actually, most of the conversation between President Trump and President Xi centered on this North Korea issue. There was, there were meetings on trade, um, and Bob Lighthizer was there. I don't think he had been confirmed yet. He was waiting confirmation for a long time, so he didn't say much. Um, and the, but the trade meeting was really a sideshow at that point. We d hadn't really gotten into the discussion. They were going to have talks, and that was about it. Uh, by November, uh, when President Trump went to Beijing, the business deals was a centerpiece of his um, visit, but I think Lighthizer at that point had only just been confirmed. So really the trade talks still hadn't really started uh, yet, and they were still working on North Korea. We were ramping up this maximum global pressure campaign and putting sanctions on, which the Chinese were going along with, and we were working with them um, to try to get progress on the North Korea issue. So the, so the change really happened once President Trump got his meeting with Kim Jong-un set up for Singapore in June, and then you saw the tariffs come down on China um, right before that meeting, I think probably in May is when they unrolled the first, uh, uh, you know, raft of tariffs, and that was really the the changeover point where it, it, North Korea with China no longer became the focus, and trade became, you know, an overwhelming focus. And at that point, Bob Lighthizer was um, in charge of the China relationship, and really, you know. Up to the present day, there's no diplomacy going on with China other than in that trade channel, and that's been the case now for the last two years. No diplomacy, but a lot of policy, a lot of attitude. I mean, if we fast forward to, to what we've seen recently, you know, the Trump administration doing this full court press where they're just pulling out all the stops just three months ahead of the election, pushing China on almost every imaginable front all, you know, simultaneously involving so many different government agencies, you know, justice and homeland security. And I mean, you name it. I mean, everyone is involved. They have their their own sort of agenda with China. What do you think they're hoping to accomplish with this? What What is this 11th hour, you know, scramble to, to burn it down? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. And I, I've been on record as saying it's not clear that there's any real uh, goal, you know, that would be could be construed as sort of in the U.S. national interest. I mean, the only thing that I've heard people say that are working on, um, you know, kind of putting into effect these um, actions is that, you know, the idea is just to do a lot of damage to the Chinese economy because we're so worried about our competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese economy and um, if we don't uh, kind of inhibit China's uh, development path now when it's, um, you know, less strong now than it will be in the future, we'll lose our chance, quote unquote. <laughs> this is the mindset of the people who are doing this. I'm not saying it makes any sense or that it's a worthy goal of trying to accomplish or that it's even possible to accomplish. But this is what, um, you know, is the generally accepted underlying impetus of a lot of these actions, I think. Just to make it harder for Biden to do anything like a reset, as it were, uh, make it harder for the next administration. One thing you got to recognize, I mean, uh, there are people in all kinds of places in the national security industrial complex that is in Washington and surrounds Washington that have um, a lot of interest and have for a long time in seeing 
uh, this kind of, you know, more muscular approach to China. And, you know, it's those people have been inhibited from pursuing some of these more extreme measures by people who are looking, you know, overlooking the entire landscape, not just of U.S.-China policy, but of U.S. foreign policy and of U.S. policy in general and how does our domestic and foreign policy fit together. So, of course, the president has the broadest view on that entire landscape of U.S. interests and how everything fits together and how complicated it is. Uh, people who are focused on these kind of actions have a much more narrow agenda, a much more uh, finite set of interests that they're interested in pushing, and they have very negative attitudes toward China. So they've been waiting a long time to be kind of unleashed to pursue, um, you know, the kinds of ideas that they've been coming up with for for years in many cases. And I think what we're seeing now is just the unleashing of a lot of, you know, free radicals in the system that have always mm -hmm. been there but have been contained. Yeah, Susan, let's talk about the decision to close the Chinese consulate in Houston and. China's response to it shuttering the U.S. consulate in Chengdu, where you'd spent some time. Uh, what did you make of all of this, of not only the U.S. decision, but also the Chinese response? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's very um, inexplicable, really. Uh, you know, the explanations, obviously, the, the U.S. took the first move in, you know, suddenly closing Houston with no notice and no discussion with the Chinese, apparently, um, you know, that, you know, is something that would normally only be seen in very extreme circumstances. The last time we closed a consulate was also in the Trump administration, actually, and it was the Russian consulate in San Francisco. But that was preceded by a long back and forth with the Russians, a sort of tit for tat, spy expulsions and a whole series of steps that also surrounded the um, controversy over the 2016 election interference issues. So, you know, to do this suddenly with Houston um, is not really uh, that comparable. But I'm, I'm, I understand that they did look at the Russian experience in coming up with this action. So um, I'm not sure why or what that means. Uh, but, you know, it was, I mean, I think a very sudden action, a very drastic action. And, um, you know, I think the Chinese response in shutting Chengdu was something that, you know, everyone that I know that watches China expected once the Houston consulate was suddenly closed. And, um, you know, we actually have um, an extra consulate in China because we have Hong Kong. And that's always been seen as a separate mission, so kind of a, uh, a sui generis kind of status for that consulate. Does not not totally considered a you know a China consulate as the others are, but you know given that we've most recently um, passed a whole bunch of executive orders and pieces of legislation to equalize Hong Kong's status with the rest of China, you can imagine that the Chinese are bringing up the fact that now we have. Uh, more consulates in the China than they do in the U.S. And we could see, um, you know, more tit-for-tat kind of diplomatic reductions, I'm afraid, in the future. Uh, speaking of diplomatic reductions, uh, one thing that we, we were chatting the other night and you were talking about a pretty steep fall-off in the number of people actually taking, young people taking the Foreign Service exam. Uh, can you talk about that uh, and uh, what, what the numbers you're seeing are and, and what this, you know, betokens? Yeah, um, I mean, we've we've always had a really robust 
response in applications, people wanting to take the Foreign Service written exam in the past. But I think it's, um, it's, it's really significant, the drop in numbers that we've seen. Normally, we have more than 20,000 people a year that take the written exam. Uh, in the most recent year, I think they said it was down to about 7,000. My God. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that um, the number of applications, and it's there's a series of steps. So the written right, exam right. is the one that's sort of the most open to the public. Once you make it through that, there's a series of more steps you have to get through. But that the numbers of um, the pool of applicants is down to a quarter of what it, it, it formerly was. So, um, you know, what I think this signals is a, a real... Um, sort of falling off of idealism among people who, you know, used to really want to be out there in the world and working on behalf of the U.S. government, um, dealing with foreign uh, countries and, you know, sort of promoting U.S. influence and U.S. culture and U.S. exchange and U.S. interests out there. Uh, and maybe what we're seeing is people have a bit more skepticism about that than than was previously the case. I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think there's probably also, um, given just the, the, the rhetoric about government and authority in this country over the past um, three years, you know, a, a diminution of people's um, kind of thinking about public service. I hope that's not yeah. the case. And I really want to encourage people who are interested in, uh, you know, foreign countries, foreign languages, cultures, uh, working on behalf of U.S. interests, U.S. values, um, to to join to to take the take the test and and join the foreign service. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful career and it's a great life. And yes, you have to work for administrations of varying stripes, but uh, in general, U.S. interests should be long-term and enduring, and defending right. those long-term and enduring U.S. interests should be something that any American, um, you know, can feel good about doing. And I think, you know, that, that they will feel good about doing that. Susan, last year, I, I approached you about getting involved in this informal group that I was uh, helping to put together. And uh, we were, you were here in North Carolina giving a talk, and we had coffee together. And he asked me two questions, and that's, it's really stuck with me. I got the sense they were sort of vetting questions. Or they were. They were a litmus test uh, of sorts. The first question was, do you, I mean, I don't know if you even remember this, but uh, do you believe that U.S. foreign policy can have a real impact on the way that Beijing behaves? That's the first one you had. And I answered, well, yes, naturally. Uh, the second question was, do you believe the government of the PRC under the Chinese Communist Party is the legitimate ruling party of China? To which I also answered, yes. And you smiled and I had apparently passed the test. Can, can you explain, can I ask you to explain why you believe that these were essential questions to get a fix on my position? I mean, presumably there are people who would answer no to both questions. Um, and we'll talk about that. But, you know, what is it about those answers that would preclude you, the, the no answers that would have precluded you from working with people uh, who, who answered that way? Um, I guess, I mean, I, I don't really remember it that clearly or why I asked those questions. And I, I assume I would have known or assumed the answers that you would have given me when I asked them. So I'm not sure it was a litmus test, but <laughs> I, I think that I... Yeah, I'm a very pragmatic person. I like to solve problems, um, and you know, to to 
to have a productive conversation about policy related, you know, um, kinds of analyses and proposals and recommendations. I mean, you really do have to believe that uh, there are things that can be done that will affect in some way, influence in some way, um, you know, the future behavior of your counterparts, in this case, China. And I've, I've worked in many, many countries, so I come at it more from a, a generalist perspective. I've worked in very difficult countries, actually. I, mean, I worked on North Korea, I worked in Turkmenistan, I worked on Russia. Um, so China's not the only tough case that I'm familiar with, but in all cases, I mean, I believed, and I, I think we have to believe that we can't, what we do makes a difference and um, that there is the possibility for change on the part of that counterpart. Right. Well, let's, before we get to that second question, let's, let's, let's drill, drill down a little bit on that first one. It seems like right now uh, there are, well, it, it feels like there are two maybe impulses that animate uh, this idea that you can't change China. You, you've heard this a lot recently. One is, is, is maybe a better one. It's an impulse to humility out of this reaction to the hubris that I think a lot of people rightly feel Americans often suffer from. That's not maybe such a bad thing. But the other is out of a kind of fatalism or, or helplessness or pessimism, this idea that China is just going to go its own way no matter what we do. Nothing that we do is ever going to make them you know, more like us. And so we might as well accept sort of that the natural state is, is enmity. Uh, that pessimistic view is also tinged with, I think, a lot of essentialism. It just says, like, you know, there's this unchanging nature of China or the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, how do advocates of diplomacy counter that idea? I think there's a third impulse, too, which is the whole Sunza crowd who says basically China's got a hundred year plan right. to take over the world and completely immutable and there's nothing you can do to you know change that and if you think you can change it it's just because they're hoodwinking you um, you know because they really have this malignant intent and they're just fooling you so I think those are all you know <laughs> kinds of attitudes or, or positions that I was trying to get at with that question because I you know, of course, um, you know, I, I think that there, humility is good. Um, and you, you hear that strain now in some of the comments, even coming from the Trump administration, like um, there were these um, starry-eyed dreamers who thought we could change China into a liberal electoral democracy, and, you know, that didn't happen. So, you know, and, and we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that that's what's going to happen. And so now we need to deal with China as we find it. That kind of, it, it, I mean, I don't know if you call that humility so much, but it's that sense of, you know, we can't completely remake this society and run it from Washington, D.C., and we shouldn't try to do that. So, you know, to some extent, that's actually a helpful corrective right. for some of the excesses that we've seen, as you mentioned. Um, but then the other two um, sort of uh, vectors that you mentioned are also, you know, I, I just think it's 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 counterproductive to think of it that way, and it's wrong, actually. I think yeah, there's yeah. a lot. First of all, I think that China changes, you know, readjusts course constantly, corrects constantly, as it's going to have to do. I mean, it's a huge, complicated place of 1.4 billion people. I mean, they, they are going to have to continually make adjustments. Their external environment is constantly changing. And so they have long-term, 
you know, national goals maybe. They have long-term national interests as other countries do and as we do. Um, and so they are mindful of those when they are shaping their approaches and their policies and putting in place their plans. But it doesn't mean that there's not, you know, we can't change those plans or that those plans are completely carved in stone. So I think that's um, one thing. I mean, the other thing, the pessimistic view, like fatalistic view, I certainly don't subscribe to that being a diplomat. And I've seen China, you know, make adjustments and react to influence from not just the United States, but other countries and adjust plans and change. Um, they're slow to react to, um, you know, pressure from others or um, things that happen, it's it's very slow. But policy reactions are slow, and in the U.S., we're also we also have lags here. So I think we're very impatient is one of our problems in dealing with China and looking for change in China. Um, but I do think we now are in the we may have underestimated uh, overestimated our influence in the past. Now we're underestimating it, and that's a big mistake. What about this this other question that you asked about legitimacy? Yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, I just got finished reading John Bolton's book, and so that sort of reminds me of this issue, which is, you know, you can't do diplomacy if your solution to every problem is regime change. You know, I just think that the Chinese Communist Party has been around now for quite a while. It has, you know, a pretty uh, big reserve of legitimacy among the Chinese people themselves, which I think a lot of people in Washington don't uh, recognize or don't, um, you know, give enough uh, recognition to or credit for. Right. They, they dismiss those polls as just the result of yeah, censorship, yeah. brainwashing, what, what have you, right? Coercion. Right. And, coercion. and there may be some of that, but the reality is, in my view, if there was an election held for the leader of China today, that Xi Jinping would win that election. So, and I, I just think people are are not operating um, from the plane of reality when they think that you know uh, the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, is is not uh, seen as the legitimate government in China, or that we could somehow easily, um, you know, make a change, and that would somehow bring about all of our, make all of our dreams come true. When Mike Pompeo gave his speech last week at the Nixon Library, I don't think I was alone in thinking he was deliberately telegraphing, you know, delegitimation with his choice of words. He was emphasizing the the good Chinese people versus the bad Chinese Communist Party, which is, you know, increasingly common. You hear it all the time. He also insisted on using the title general secretary, Xi Jinping, rather than calling him by the name that Beijing prefers, which is president. Um, whatever the truth of, of it is, you know, generally states get to decide the, the title by which their leaders are, are addressed, but he, he broke with tradition on that. What did you make of that? And, and again, what would the sort of pro-diplomacy approach have been? Well, I, I really find it pretty hard to get inside the, the mind of Mike Pompeo, but I will say that I just found it so ironic that he was giving this speech at the Nixon Library, too. I have to just uh, put that in there because, you know, Nixon's legacy on China is something that I think is uh, a very proud legacy. And to have him stand up and give that very, I don't know, pugilistic speech at the Nixon Library was very odd to me. But um, he talked about Nixon saying that we need to induce change in China um, at the time of Nixon's visit in the, in the early 70s. And I you know, I mean, I just think it's so 
patently false to try to imply that China has not changed since the early 1970s <laughs> right. and that the U.S. has not had a huge part in inducing that change. Um, and even, I mean, as they are constantly now saying, you know, China's not free, China, you know, there's no freedom. I mean, the Chinese society that you and I know today is vastly more free um, than what Nixon saw in the early 1970s. And I right. think we should feel good about that and take credit for that. And that is part of Nixon's legacy, which, you know, should be a proud legacy, frankly, from where I sit. Um, so I think, you know, he's talking about, I mean, I thought Pompeo was pretty careful to, to you know, and this was certainly probably lost on people in China because it was such a, a finely, um, you know, kind of honed, and complicated message, but I thought what he was trying to do was say, we're not trying to overturn the Chinese Communist Party, but we want the Chinese people to try to change the Chinese Communist Party into something that uh, looks more like us, which, you know, <laughs> is, is, a, is a very fine shade of, <laughs> of gray <Right. laughs> from regime change. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, we, we've, we've been through this so many times now in the recent past. I have to say the post-Cold War period has not been good to U.S. foreign policy, I don't think, because, um, you know, it started with the Frank Fukuyama, the end of history, and just gave us to think that there was a lot more that we could do to change countries and remake them in our image than actually turns out is possible to do, as we've seen. And so the idea that, you know, we would want to even run China remotely from Washington or think that we could install some government that would do a better job than the Chinese Communist Party has done is, is beyond hubris. And if you look at what the Chinese Communist Party has done for China in the last 40 years, um, you know, it's, it would be a tough comparison with just about any other government in any other country in, in the world to, to see a similar level from the perspective of the people who live there of advance. Um, and so I think, you know, we've really got to recalibrate our approach into something that's a little bit more realistic. Yeah, so let's talk about that, um, how we can restore diplomacy. I mean, because there's a lot of difficult questions that we, we've got to address. Uh, you've talked about diplomacy before as something that's ultimately centered on respect. Can you unpack that idea a bit? Talk about what you mean by, you know, centering diplomacy on, on respect. Well, I think in order to even have diplomacy happening, you've got to um, maintain a certain level of decorum so that you can talk to counterparts. And the, the thing that the U.S. Is, has not been good at um, with respect to diplomacy, even, even before this administration came in, in my view, is we, we haven't been very clear on... A, a prioritization of U.S. interests in the world, and we haven't uh, paid much attention to what other countries' interests are. Um, and, and that's the key, you know, to diplomacy and to negotiating and to, and to sort of making progress and getting uh, things that you want is, is to know what you want and to know what the other guy wants. Right. And we haven't really done a very good job of that. But in order to, to get at that, you've got to be able to talk in detail with counterparts, listen to them, hear what they're saying, have good analysis by people who are, you know, on the ground and know what's going on in a place. And um, you've got to have a certain amount of respect 
for the people that you're sitting down with, even if they're from a government that has a different ideology than yours, even if they have a different set of interests than you have, in order to get progress, um, you've got to, you know, and we're seeing this in spades with North Korea. We've tried meeting at the highest levels and having a quick 15 minute, you know, try to get an agreement done. It doesn't work like that. You've really got to unpack a lot of history, a lot of, you know, why is your interest so important in this area? And is that really the bottom line? And if you can't have those conversations with counterparts in a respectful way, you're not going to get anywhere. And we've basically um, not gotten anywhere for now several years on any issue because we're not really talking to anybody like that. I feel like, you know, we ought to at least have some sort of version of the Hippocratic Oath. We have this, like, weird urge to get ourselves into worse situations because we have to do something. It's always, we have to do something. I feel like rather than do something, maybe trust the diplomacy and maybe at least do no harm, right? I mean, God, anyway. Diplomacy has really been um, kind of undercut by this, like, sense that we talked about earlier that you know it's it's somehow weak it's compar- it's, a, it's for appeasers right and i think what the u.s um electorate has to understand and we have to get back to somehow um being able to articulate more clearly and our politicians have really failed us on this point is that diplomacy is not weak it's not it's not some kind of appeasement it's actually the cheapest smartest way to get what we want um, and, and to have it be uh, contributing to a sort of predictable environment in which our influence is maximized, uh, as opposed to, you know, seeing every problem as a military problem, um, and then you end up, you know, spending an awful lot of money and not always getting a good result. So I think, you know, you can't say that diplomacy always gets a great result, but at least if we don't end up with the, the, um, the optimal result, we haven't, we haven't spent or lost a lot in the process. And I think that's, you know, one thing that people have not really focused on sufficiently and understood. Uh, you hear Congress once in a while says, oh, we have to get back to using diplomatic tools. But Congress has, has been the biggest um, <laughs> obstacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In terms of promote, promoting diplomacy. I mean, they're always demanding. They have two tools, military intervention and sanctions. They don't necessarily want to be promoting military intervention all the time, but sanctions is the only thing they seem to be able to come up with. And they certainly have been undercutting our diplomacy by trying to legislate foreign policy um, to a degree that has never been seen in the past. So I, I think there are probably a lot of people who are like me who are deeply concerned at the precipitous decline in U.S.-China relations right now and who really recoil at the unhelpful stridency that comes out of the Trump administration, but who still see uh, a values-centered diplomacy, uh, you know, human rights as a really important piece of diplomacy. They're horrified at what's happening right now in Xinjiang. Uh, They're really, really worried about the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, These people are understandably having a very difficult time of things. They, They don't want to be silent on issues that they care about, but they also recognize that very little that they do that the U.S. is doing is actually having much of an effect. What do you say to people like that? I mean, you must encounter them daily. Look, diplomacy is uh, definitely useful in these cases, and it hasn't been used well. And in fact, it's been used to exacerbate the problems, in my view. Um, Let's take um, Hong Kong, for example. I mean, diplomacy can be used to stop bad things from happening, 
I mean, we knew that something bad was going to happen in Hong Kong, um, probably starting in 2014 when they failed to get the uh, new electoral package through and uh, people were growing increasingly frustrated. And what should have been done, I mean, you can, you can hold out, uh, you know, punitive measures as a deterrent against doing bad things, but you have to also offer positive things, carrots, to induce not only people to not do bad things, but for people to do the right things. And that has been unfortunately severely lacking in in every single case that I can almost think of um, in the in recent years. Um, you know, in the case of Hong Kong, I, I personally, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but you know, many many people predicted that there would be um, this kind of denouement after the crisis that we saw last year, and you know, that crisis was not made better for U.S. and international actions. And there was nothing, uh, no discussion with Beijing, no, um, you know, discussion about what a positive path might be, um, what kinds of inducements for doing something less draconian would be, etc. In Xinjiang, I mean, I personally also think there that there was a window at one point to try to, um, uh, you know, pressure China to make some changes uh, to the approach that they're using out there. But I think now it's it's unfortunately too late. And again, no positive inducement, no uh, notion that if you do this, you know, um, you could get some better um, opinion coming from the international community or, you know, um, something about um, in international institutions. Um, you you have to be creative and think of think of both sides, the punitive and the incentives. It's been all sticks and no carrots. Yeah, Susan. Uh, before we we move on to the Q and A section, for folks, I, I imagine there are a lot of young people who are watching and, and weighing careers in the foreign service right now. Um, some who are tuning in live, and also some who are listening to the, to the podcast. So, so, so make your pitch. <laughs> tell tell them why it's so urgent right now for our best and our brightest uh, to consider the foreign foreign service as a career option. I think you've done it pretty well already, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the most exciting career, first of all, that I think that I can imagine. I mean, and I am a person who is a little bit ADD, uh, so this was great for me. I can learn languages, I can move, uh, you know, every three or four years, go to a new place, I can learn about a new subject um, without ever having to be unemployed. And so for me, I just, I loved the idea of constantly learning about new things and constantly broadening my horizons. And I think, um, you know, you can do it and serve your country at the same time. You meet such wonderful um, people from every possible background. It's it's really a collection of, you know, outstanding colleagues and friends. And, um, and you get the, you know, added advantage of sort of experiencing and immersing yourself in different cultures, which, which is really a, a, a huge, um, you know, life-changing and life-expanding experience. And so I think, you know, people may have qualms about, and I always get the question, and maybe some people are asking it already, 
um, you know, how do you how do you represent a policy that you disagree with? Right. right. Um, which is which is which is a good question, and you know, certainly recently we've seen this come to come to play more than maybe ever in the past before. But I think um, you can rationalize a lot of things that the U.S. government does because there's really no right answer. There are, are shades of ambiguity and gray, and uh, you might wish that we were doing something a little bit differently, but you can understand, if you're in the government, how this has come to pass. Uh, if you, but everybody has their line that you know they won't cross, and at that point, you know you might have to make a decision to do something else. But uh, for most people in the U.S. government who are very smart people and very uh, principled, they uh, can find a way to manage that tension. And it is a tension, but I think it's a tension that you probably have in every job, no matter what you're doing. So um, I don't think it should inhibit people from. Uh, going forward, and of course, you have the chance to have an impact on U.S. foreign policy going forward, and you have a chance to make the world a better place, and I think those are all really worthy goals for anybody. Susan, we'll leave it there. What a delight to talk to you, uh, and as always, and uh, really can't wait to, to have you back on the show again. Uh, let's let's turn it over to Owen. Uh, bring her back are on. Are we not going to do the? Are we not going to do the book and the? Oh jokes? yeah, we got. Let's do recommendations. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. God, I mean, I think no, it, it, no, let's no, let's no, let's no, do them quickly. quickly. I've got one. So go go. What you got oh. for us? Recommendations. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today, SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com and help us out. Thank you so much. Um, all right. Well, I want to make a pitch for my friend Paul Heer's book, which is called Mr. X and the Pacific. Right. You know, and I've been delving back into um, Kennan's memoirs and looking back at all of the things he did and reviewing all of the 
early Cold War history, and I won't tell you why I've been doing that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I think Paul's is such a good addition to this sort of literature on Kennan and George Kennan's memoirs um, because people don't really think about him as having had much to do with the Pacific. And of course, when he was at policy planning at the State Department, he did think a lot about the Pacific. And so I, I just want to make a plug for his book. I haven't gotten through the whole thing yet, but he's a brilliant analyst and a good friend and a very sensible guy. And I think um, that that's, that's my recommendation. I'm going to get that. I'm going to pick that up right away. I love Paul here. I love the stuff that he writes. He's, he's terrific. Um, let me quickly do mine. Um, Mine is for the TV show Better Call Saul, uh, which, of course, spun off from the inimitable, inimitable Breaking Bad. I, I had allowed myself for a long time to be swayed by uh, one of my best friends, who's my college roommate, who was a huge Breaking Bad fan, who, who said that uh, Better Call Saul is like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead to Breaking Bad's Hamlet. He was just so disparaging of it. And, and I find I finished it last night, the, the fourth season. I thought it was just fantastic. I, I just I loved it. So um, well, I have a running it. argument with my husband and my son who who love Better Call Saul, and I'm like, I just can't watch it because like you know that every time the person's gonna make the decision to do the bad thing, not the good thing, and I just can't <laughs> take it. <laughs> right, right. It's it, it. I used to get full blown panic attacks just watching Breaking Bad. I just couldn't. I, I yeah, had trouble finishing. It was just so anxiety producing. But, but that's, yeah. that's what made it. So we should art. tell people that are listening and watching. You know, do the right thing, people. Don't do, right do thing, what absolutely. Saul would do. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific, Susan. Thank you so much. And uh, over to you, Owen. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Um, our first question is going to come... The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts in the network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.